Please be seated. Good evening. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. If you're with us this evening, as we, Sunday nights, we make our way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and you're here with us and you don't have a Bible, just wave to the guys coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and uh, they'll get a Bible into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you uh, tonight. We remember from last week that Jesus is now well into the final uh, week of his life and his ministry prior to his uh, death upon the cross for our sins. And as we saw last time, he spoke the parable of the vineyard owner, and he spoke it as an indictment against the Jewish religious systems as they existed at his time, and the Jewish religious leaders readily recognized that it was a condemnation of them and that he was aware of the fact that not only of the long history of the Jews of killing God's prophets that were sent to them under the old covenant, but now uh, they were working toward the death of even the son uh, of the vineyard owner. And uh, Jesus makes what was going on in secret and by secret counsel with, uh, with these religious leaders, he brings it out into the open. You see their response once again in verse 12, and they sought to lay hands on him. They would have taken him and uh, tried to arrest him or tear him from limb to limb on the spot. Uh, But they feared the multitude, and they feared the multitude because of Jesus' popularity among the multitude, the common people. Uh, For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and so they left him and they went uh, astray. And now what the Jewish religious leaders are going to do here, an expression of their hostility and opposition to him, is that they're going to come one group at a time, and they're going to try to publicly humiliate Jesus. Each one of these questions that we're going to look at tonight, where they come to Jesus and they try to pose these questions in order to humiliate him, it's, all of it is done in a public setting. It's done before disciples of Jesus as he's teaching them in public places. And, uh, you know, you don't, um, you don't endeavor to trap someone publicly uh, unless you feel that your trap is foolproof, that it cannot come back and make you look like the one who's been fooled now by the trap that you've laid. And the three traps that they're going to try and set for Jesus here, in their minds, it is inescapable. They've got him. And uh, they're going to attempt to harm his popularity among uh, the common people. And so all of this uh, dynamic is, uh, is going on. This is the attempt that, that they're going to make. The Jewish religious leaders, I'm convinced, certainly at this uh, point in time, they have no idea, no idea at all, that Jesus is going to die on the cross toward the end of the week. Uh, They have no idea that they're going to be successful in somehow getting Pilate on that fateful morning to be uh, kind of condemned and, and, uh, and the power play and the manipulation that went on, though Jew and Gentile alike are responsible for Jesus being on the cross. Nobody put him on there except that he, he was willing to be sacrificed himself for all of us. But they have no idea that, 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 okay, in two days we're going to have him on a cross and we're going to be done with him. So they keep trying to chip away at, uh, at him. Uh, 
But even in this whole scene, God is completely in control because God is going to allow Jesus to be crucified. And he's going to allow the Jewish religious leaders to play a part in that. But it will not happen on the day of their choosing. It will happen on the day that fulfills the Jewish feast of Passover, where Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just covers the sins uh, of an individual under the old covenant as as the Jewish Passover represented, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. But all of that is going to unfold, but they don't know that yet. They're trying to chip away at his popularity. And so we're told that uh, uh, then they, the Jewish establishment, sent to him, that is Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Herodians to somehow catch him in his words. And so this is a, uh, obviously an tri- uh, tri- attempt to trip him up. It's interesting that the Pharisees come and the Herodians come among the Jewish kind of religious sects Uh, These two were on polar opposite ends of things. The Pharisees were strongly against Roman rule, uh, strongly against uh, being subject to the Roman Empire. The Herodians were a little more, they were Jews and religious Jews, and they were a little more pragmatic related to it. And it's like, well, what can you do? I mean, we can't throw off uh, Rome, and so let's just cooperate with them. Let's not all become martyrs. God is in control of our history. And so Um, let's just ride this thing out and uh, go along to get along. And uh, and yet even these kind of enemies in a a religious setting among the Jews join together now in an attempt to uh, trip Jesus up. And and both the Pharisees and the Herodians are uh, absolutely uh, perfect choices for the question that they are uh, going to, to pose to him. And so uh, they came to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. Uh, uh, Grab your wallet. This is flattery. I mean, she knew what they were. And it it is interesting when people come and they're wanting something from you. It's like, uh, uh, I think it's discerning of the spirit. I mean, you just just know this is, uh, I'm going to, they're going to try and take me here. And this is just pure, ugly flattery. We know that you're true and care about no one, and uh, for you do not regard the person of men. That is, you're not a respecter of persons. You'll tell uh, anybody the truth and everybody the truth. But you teach the way of God in truth. And then here's the question that they pose to him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the hook behind this question, and it's very, very good question, by the way, if the idea is to humiliate Jesus or to somehow uh, begin to divide off uh, some section of his followers. There was one portion of the Jewish population who, like the Pharisees, detested uh, the Romans and uh, Roman occupation and Roman rule, and they were constantly uh, having this debate over whether it was, it was lawful to pay taxes to, to Caesar or not, and, it, and, and somehow this was you know, beneath them as God's people and, and all, and so is it lawful uh, to do that? And, and, they, and the question that they pose to Jesus is the perfect question because if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, then they would have made a beeline 
for the Roman officials and said, this man is preaching insurrection against the Roman Empire, and he's teaching people that they shouldn't pay their taxes, and they would have accomplished uh, having Jesus uh, uh, arrested. But if Jesus says, no, it's okay to pay taxes to Rome, then Jesus would have lost support among the most zealous of the Jewish uh, people who felt that this was something uh, that they shouldn't do out of a a zeal for God and a a faithfulness to God. So in their minds, this this is a perfect question, no matter what he says, we have got him. And again, you don't ask, uh, you don't set a trap in public unless you, you, you absolutely believe that it, it can't, uh, uh, you know, spring back on you. And uh, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, that is Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing that they're not interested at all in, uh, in an honest answer here at all, that it is a trap. I think it's in Psalm 139 that says that the Lord knows our thoughts when they're afar off. And it's a tremendous advantage that God has over us in any kind of an argument. He knows what we're going to think before we think it. And so trying to trap God is an exercise in frustration. But he knew it was hypocrisy. It wasn't honest. And so he said, openly, then why do you test me? I get what you're trying to do to me. And he said, bring a denarius that I may see it. And a denarius was a Roman coin that had Caesar's image on it. And, uh, and it, was you, it was the coin that was used to pay taxes to, uh, to Rome. It was typically a denarii was uh, the wages of uh, a blue-collar worker, uh, the daily wage of a blue-collar worker. And so he asked for the coin, and they produced it. They didn't mind uh, carrying uh, those coins because uh, they took them at Starbucks or wherever they got their whatever. And uh, so he takes the coin and then he says to them, whose image inscription is this? And obviously he's pointing to Caesar's image on the one side of the coin. And they said to him, Caesar's. And then Jesus answered and he said to them, here's the answer to my question, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are, uh, uh, belong to God. And, and so uh, that just as they uh, were to give to Caesar that which bore his image, that is to give, uh, give their money to uh, Caesar, the Roman money, uh, we, uh, Jesus is saying we are to, uh, to give our lives, our lives bearing the image of God. We, as people, we are created in the image of God that, that our lives are not to be given to anyone other than uh, given to uh, to God. And so give to Caesar what bears his image, Roman money, and don't be afraid to pay taxes. It's, it, it, uh, and uh, any th- we get benefit. Government is an institution of God, by the way. We may not like what it does week in and week out, uh, but it is an institution for law and order and supposed to be for righteousness within a nation. So it is to be supported by our taxes. But the place we are never to give the government in our life is the position that belongs solely to God because we do not bear the image at our core of any government, however patriotic we are or whatever it might be, and I'm all for patriotism. Uh, but we bear at our core the image of God. 
because we've been created in His image, and there is a place for a government within our lives, but it is never to take the place in our lives that belongs uh, solely uh, to uh, God. And so, uh, Jesus uh, speaks this, and uh, as He slips out from under it, He doesn't give them the, the, the answer that they're asking for here, or think, think that the trap is going to produce, and they left, and they um, marveled at him. You think about, imagine the excitement that they had. Um, I do happen to like watching football, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm still watching professional football. You'll forgive me for that. Uh, but um, you see these wide receivers or running backs when they catch a, f- a football and they go into the end zone, and they do these little dances and things. And then sometimes uh, there'll be two, three, four players that will come together and dance with them. And uh, it always seems odd to me. Here are some of the toughest people physically in the entire world and uh, preparing for a game, and yet they find time in some room somewhere uh, to uh, somebody's producing this choreography, and they're practicing. (laughs) They're practicing someplace and then doing this in front of uh, everyone. Uh, some of it I do like uh, every once in a while. I, I won't, I, uh, we've wasted enough time on this. But they, the, the excitement with which they come uh, to this, they have put this thing together. This is a can't miss. And, and as high as their excitement was for being successful here, uh, they, they leave marveling and disappointed at their failure uh, to trap Jesus in this regard. Jesus is then approached by uh, some Sadducees who, uh, Mark tells us here, who say there is no resurrection, and they uh, came to him. Very important to understand a little bit about the Sadducees here. The Sadducees were the theological liberals, and there are liberal denominations that that, uh, consider themselves to be Christian and identify as Christian. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in a virgin birth. They They don't believe in much. And that you just come together and have kind of a feel-good uh, hour over uh, something from the Bible, some kind of moral teaching, and, and, uh, but in terms of being born again and believing in Christ for all of that, it's not there. And, uh, and, and the Sadducees were in the category of not believing in resurrection, as Mark tells us. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They were the rationalists of their day. If, if it couldn't be explained uh, uh, by the natural realm, uh, then they didn't believe in it. So they didn't believe in the supernatural at all. And this is who is coming now uh, to Jesus and the background behind their question, and that's why it's important to, to uh, understand a little bit about him, to understand the question. And the question that they posed to him was a uh, teacher. Uh, Moses wrote to us, that if a man's brother dies, so here he is, he's married, and he leaves his wife uh, behind, uh, and there are no children yet to carry on his name, and, uh, and, and is, that his brother should then take his wife, his wife, and uh, go into her and raise up offspring for his brother. And this was a part of the law of Moses, so that if a man died and there were no children, 
uh, to carry on the, na- the, f- the man's name or the family name, then uh, uh, the younger brother would then go into her. A child that would be produced by that would then carry on the name of the older son so that uh, the, the, the bro- older brother who had died so that his name wouldn't be lost in, in Israel. And so this is what Moses taught. And then here's their hypothetical. He said, now there were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife. And uh, dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and uh, he died. And uh, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third, likewise. The, uh, the, the parents of these boys have got to be very concerned uh, at this point. They're going to say, I'm not going to have any sons left to carry on my name. And so the, the seven had her, and they left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died also, I can imagine. And uh, seven brothers, I mean, all from the, wow. And uh, therefore, here's the question that they pose. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Now, they mention the resurrection, but not in a way in which they're saying, we believe in the resurrection. They're trying to make a mockery. Uh, of the resurrection, and they're trying to make a mockery of what Moses is, is saying here. And, uh, and, and so here is this, this hypothetical situation, and then, if, and then in, in the resurrection, uh, when they all rise, who gets to have her as wife? And, and don't you see Jesus, and don't you see the, the absolute uh, foolishness of this idea of, of resurrection and life after death? I, I personally have uh, no doubt at all that, uh, that the Sadducees had brought this same uh, hypothetical question to the Pharisees continually. Because the Pharisees believed in all those things. They believed in angels, they believed in the afterlife, they believed in resurrection, all of those things. They were, uh, they, they were conservatives theologically. And, uh, and so they had probably used this question over and over again, making fun of the resurrection to the Pharisees. And, had, and since the Pharisees evidently had not stopped them and, and answered their question biblically, uh, they just continued to use it and thought, well, we'll use it on Jesus here and we'll be successful. And Jesus responded and he answered in verse 24 and he said to them, are you, are you not therefore mistaken? because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And this is the great core problem of the Sadducees. Number one, they did not know the Scriptures, and number two, they did not know the power of God. And it takes both of those things to make a disciple of God, to make a Christian. Uh, A knowledge of the Scriptures, that's why we're here this evening, to learn the Scriptures, but then also a confidence in the power of God that anything that God says that he's done in the Word of God, that he has done that. As the old saying goes, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, you can believe everything in terms of the miraculous. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything is a cinch after that. And so uh, uh, Jesus speaks to them here about uh, their, their great weakness is a lack of knowledge of the Scriptures nor the power of God, and he's going to illustrate their uh, weakness in both of these areas. For, he said, when they rise from the dead in the resurrection, 
they, they neither marry uh, nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. A fascinating thing, Jesus begins to answer them, and here they are, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in resurrection, and Jesus answers them talking about resurrection and talking about angels, matter-of-factly. And he plants himself firmly in the camp of, of one who believes in these things. And, uh, and, and so when a person dies, these, these hypothetical people that are godly and seeking after God in the Old Testament, and, and, uh, and when they enter into the, the life that is to come into eternity and, uh, and rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are uh, like angels in heaven. We don't become angels when, when we die, but we become like angels in that we don't marry. And so marriage is an institution of God for this life. It does not carry over into the life of come, uh, to come. I will not be married to Karen in the life to come. She will not be uh, married to me. And, uh, and heaven is going to be about something that is in, in, entirely superior to um, even the, the, the experiences of the greatest marriage that any individual can experience uh, in this life. After all, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. And once we're in heaven, that's no longer going to be through a glass darkly. That's going to be face to face. So everything marriage is intended to communicate to the world about that relationship and for us to enjoy in understanding that relationship between Christ and the church, we won't need it any longer. There will be no need for procreation in heaven. Nobody dies uh, in heaven. And in terms of the intimacy that people feel emotionally, intellectually, in a, in a healthy marriage and all, and say, well, I'll miss that. But once we're in heaven, I mean, this is going to go into a realm that none of us can even begin to understand in which the, re the relationship will not be between kind of a mediator and marriage, but this is going to go on emotionally and intellectually on all levels. The relationship will now be between us and Jesus Christ himself. So there'll be no loss here. It's going to be supplanted by something uh, far, uh, far greater. And so Jesus corrects them on that particular front. And then he goes a little bit further now in, in verse 26, and he addresses the, the larger, I don't believe in the resurrection theological position of, of the Sadducees. And, and he quotes here from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And he said, but concerning the dead, you've tried to trap me here on this, You've probably got a long history of trapping the Pharisees, but you're not dealing with the Pharisees any longer. And also realize that the Sadducees would not accept anything as authoritative from God unless it came from the law. They did not recognize the poetic book, the historical books, or the prophets as authoritative in comparison to the law. So if you were going to prove resurrection to them, they by, uh, uh, limited you to doing so from the first five books of, uh, of the Old Testament. But even that doesn't hinder Jesus. And he said, but concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying to Moses, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, 
but the God of the living, and, there, and you are therefore greatly mistaken. The events that uh, are recorded there in uh, the book of Exodus uh, occurred long, long, long uh, after, hundreds of years after uh, the, the death of the Jewish patriarchs. When God spoke to Moses, this was hundreds of years after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet Je- uh, Jesus uh, portrays them and, and gives him right from the Old Testament, from the law itself, that God described himself as not having been in a past tense relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I used to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I am, present tense, that when they died, they are still alive now, and there is life on the other side of, of death, and the relationship with God continues on the other side uh, uh, of death of death, and, uh, and, and so the, uh, the patriarchs are alive, and, and, and if they are alive, as, as uh, God speaks to Moses uh, here, then the resurrection is, is proved, and proved from the Bible. And then he puts the capstone on it, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and you are therefore uh, greatly mistaken. And again, the two great mistakes. And we have to be careful of them because there is a, uh, these threads still uh, uh, endeavor to run through Christianity today. He said uh, to, uh, of them, you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And I think that so often within the body of Christ, you can even have in the healthiest of churches that represent Christianity today, you can have a tremendous uh, emphasis upon the Word of God but a denial of the power of God, or a great emphasis upon the power of God, but a neglect of the Scriptures. And it'll, it'll never produce a healthy Christian. And both of these things need uh, to be true, and we don't have to choose be- between them. The importance of knowing the Scriptures and knowing the power of God as well, or we will become uh, theologically liberal in our thinking and in our practice as well. Well, the Pharisees, they are uh, watching all of this happen. And again, it's all happening publicly. Uh, And all of the people that are are here watching all of this that uh, love Jesus, that uh, are listening to his teaching, uh, this is uh, very, they're pretty excited. I mean, here we are separated 2,000 years from the events. I'm pretty excited. I can picture it within my mind. And so one of the scribes, and the scribes were uh, Old Testament lawyers, basically. And, uh, and when we think of a lawyer, we think of a courtroom and all of this. And, uh, but in those days, a lawyer was a lawyer. It was somebody who was an expert in the law. And many of the, those who became uh, lawyers or experts in the law of Moses became experts in the law of Moses by virtue of being scribes. They were the copyists. Uh, of the Bible. There were no printing presses, and so every copy of the Scriptures was uh, done by hand. It would make you quite an authority. I mean, you, I forget what the Jewish process was, but when you would copy a page or copy a verse, it would be uh, done, and then you would look at it seven times, and then other people would come in, and so, and I mean, a very, very in-depth process that would uh, ultimately make you quite an expert in the Scriptures. Uh, and and uh, if your premise isn't off to begin with. And so one of the scribes, and, and almost all of the scribes, were, uh, were Pharisees. He came, 
and having heard them reasoning together uh, and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, and of course any Pharisee would love to see a, a Sadducee put in their place, uh, he then poses another question uh, to, uh, to Jesus. And he said, which is the first commandment of all? What's the greatest of the commandments? 613 commandments in the law of Moses, and this was a, 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 a subject of constant debate among the Jews and among the uh, Jewish theologians. Of all the commandments in the law of Moses, what is the single greatest commandment? And the idea is that they're going to ask Jesus to choose between one of these 613, and whatever one he chooses is going to dis, uh, be displeasing to some portion of his audience, and so it will harm his popularity. And so Jesus answered him, and he said, the first, and that word first is an important word, the first of all of the commandments is, and he quotes now the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. This is the single uh, greatest uh, commandment uh, of all. And then uh, Jesus proceeds uh, freely uh, to give them his understanding and his uh, revelation, really, of the second most important, uh, co greatest commandment in, uh, of the 613. And, and here uh, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, than these two. So there's a first and there is a second. And the interesting thing about the first commandment and the greatest commandment is that it has to do with our vertical relationship with God, straight up and down. And then the second commandment has to do with our horizontal relationships with one another. And you put the two commandments together and what you have is the cross before us. And the reason that the, uh, that the cross is, uh, even in these two great commandments, it is, beca is because it is only in becoming a Christian and receiving the uh, spiritual birth and the power of the Holy Spirit that we have any hope at all of obeying these two greatest commandments. But it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the capacity to do this. The other thing that's interesting when he says first and second, and I mentioned it almost every time when I teach in this section, and so bear with me if you've been around for a while, but we're in the middle of such a mess socially in our country that it, it bears repeating every single time, at least in my mind, that we come to it. You notice as he talks about the, the greatest commandment, he gives a first and a second, and, and, there, and he doesn't give a third. And one of the things that happened about 30 or 35 years ago within the culture, but then it moved very strongly into Christianity at that time, was people looked at Christians, looked at these two great commandments and saw the demands of the commandments. And then almost like uh, the lawyers among the Pharisees looked for a way uh, out of obeying those commandments or to look out for an excuse for not uh, having these properly represent uh, their lives or our lives. And so they came up with a third commandment. And that is that, uh, is, is he says here, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then the technicality that they came on is when Jesus calls us to love one another as ourselves, what if I don't 
love myself. And of course, that's the great problem in our culture, isn't it? That people don't love themselves enough. That's what we tell ourselves. I don't love myself enough. I need to, give, I need to love myself enough. I need to give myself more and more and, and more. And so then what happened is the focus went off, completely off of obeying the first two commandments, which is the supernatural life, to now I'm going to have to learn to love myself so I can then obey the other two commandments. The problem is, is that once I make the focus of my life loving myself, I will never have time to do the other two commandments. And we've seen how in 40 years, how this selfism, this selfishness, this self-focus has grown not just in the world. I mean, until look at how uh, barbaric we are becoming in this culture toward one another because I am the most important person in the world and you don't count, and God doesn't even count. Forget about loving you and my neighbor as myself. You don't count because I'm still learning how to love myself adequately, and the problem is, is that once you get on that track, you'll never get off of it. But when Jesus says we're to love our neighbor as ourself, he isn't saying, listen, now you need to get into some kind of therapy to learn to love yourself. He's saying we are to love our neighbor the way we already love ourselves. The classic example is if you're ever in some kind of a class picture of some kind, and there you are, 60 of you or 40 of you, and they take the picture, and then they bring the picture and put it in front of you. Who's the first person you look at? Oh, listen, I want to look at all the other 59 before I look at myself. Oh, am I even in the picture? We make a beeline to see how we looked in the picture, and then we will determine whether it's a good picture or a bad picture on the basis, not of how the other 59 look, but solely on the basis of how I look in, in that picture. No, we're to love our neighbor just the way that we already love ourselves. In other words, it's not something we have to learn, not something that we have to practice, but one in which we just simply look at other people and say, what would I want said to me in that circumstance? What would I want done for me if I was in that same circumstance, and then to simply do that. It's within reach of, of, uh, of all of us. It is a, a savage culture uh, that we're in the middle of now as it just headlong into this, uh, you know, me first kind of, uh, of, of, of thinking. And so the scribe, he said, verse 32, he said to Jesus, well said, teacher, for you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is uh, no other but He. And to love Him with all uh, the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all of the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that uh, He answered wisely, He said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God, but after that no one dared uh, question him. So they're done uh, attempting to uh, trap 
uh, Jesus here, and uh, Jesus has <laughs> gone far from losing any kind of popular support among the people. I think they were on their cell phones calling all of their friends to come down and check out what's happening in the area of the temple. His popularity was continuing uh, to grow. And then we see those first two words of verse 35, then Jesus. Now he's got a question uh, for them. He has a question now for uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees that have come trying to test him on these, the greatest commandment. And, and he said, while he taught there in the temple, he said, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David and the idea is merely the son of David? The Jews taught at that time, and they continue almost overwhelmingly, almost completely, teach concerning Messiah uh, to this day, that when the Messiah comes, he will not be the Son of God, uh, despite the Scriptures that speak to that, but that he will be a blood descendant of King David, and he will be a man, but merely a man. He will not be divine, not fully God, fully man, as Jesus declared himself to be and as he was. So they only, they only believed that he would be simply uh, a man. This, of course, is one of the great things that is going to set the Jews up, unfortunately, uh, for uh, the great deception of the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period where they will uh, uh, come and, and they sit on the edge of their seat. Now, we'll be, we will recognize our Messiah as the one who will allow us to rebuild the temple and allow us to reinstitute our worship. And the Bible teaches that it's going to be the Antichrist who will come on the scene following the rapture of the church that will allow them to do that. And then at the three-and-a-half point mark of the great tribu uh, tribulation period, the Antichrist will then turn on them. He will walk straight into the Holy of Holies uh, on uh, some particular morning. He will sit down uh, there on the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat, and he will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. And then the Jews will realize we have been absolutely fleeced here on this, and they will run for their lives as Jesus uh, calls upon them to do, as we'll see in the, the next chapter next week, Lord willing. And so this was the, the view that they had concerning the Messiah, just a man, but, but not uh, anything uh, more uh, than, uh, than that. And so he says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David or merely the son of David. And then he answers this question by quoting from Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, great messianic psalm of the Old Testament written by David. And Jesus said, for David himself said, by the Spirit, speaks to us of the inspiration, Jesus' um, acknowledgement or endorsement of, of the inspiration of the Old Testament. But more than that, Jesus is saying, for David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, in other words, this didn't come from Davis. David, as wonderful as David was, the greatest king in the history of Israel, this is also the witness of the Holy Spirit to Messiah. And so David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110:1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
And then Jesus applies the passage and said, therefore, David himself calls the Messiah Lord, then how is he then his son or merely uh, uh, his, his son? And, uh, and that's the question in Psalm 110 clearly declares that Messiah will be both David's son, as Jesus is bringing out here, of his bloodline, but also be David's Lord, that the Messiah will be both human and divine, exactly as Jesus was. And this wasn't just simply the view of of David, but again, Jesus makes it clear to us that this was the view, uh, and and this was spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And and those who who were were with Jesus there as he's teaching in the temple, and he's witnessing all of it, here's their response, and the common people heard him gladly. I mean, he's just... Uh, on a roll here in terms of uh, dealing with these Jewish uh, religious leaders. They're absolutely, uh, they knew who prevailed in this, these exchanges, and, and they are, are thrilled at Jesus' uh, teaching. And then while Jesus has uh, the crowd gathered, he then uh, speaks to those that have come to hear his teaching and to warn them uh, against the influence and against the hypocrisy uh, of, of the scribes to avoid their example. And he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes. Imagine you, a scribe standing there, you know this can't be good. But he begins to describe them. But the beware is, don't let them influence you in any way. Uh, the scribes who desire to go about in long uh, robes. Uh, they walk, uh, the, the scribes would walk around Again, most of whom were Pharisees. They walked around in long white robes. And so they wore spiritual garb in order to communicate that they were extra spiritual and there was a a gap, uh, spiritually speaking, between uh, you and between them. And so it was all, even their garb was intended to to communicate uh, spiritual uh, uh, superiority. Uh, the, the, the great, one of the great marks of spirituality is humility. And a humble person would never put on a robe like that to then make people, as a means of communicating to other people, I am more spiritual than you. And yet this became uh, their uniform. He said they, uh, they uh, love the garden, uh, the, the greetings. Uh, in the marketplace. They loved the prominence and the, and the public recognition that came uh, with their position. Uh, they loved the best seats at, the, at the, the, the synagogues. They loved to be up in front in the most important seats so everybody could realize just how I- important uh, they are. And they made sure that they were in those seats. And the best place uh, at, uh, at at the feasts, and so uh, they made sure that always that they were seated, seated by the person that was giving the feast, and uh, so that again people could recognize how important uh, they were. And who, and this is so sad, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. And the idea, it seems to be here, is um, they used this uh, wonderful reality called prayer, uh, not as a a genuine means of talking with God or to intercede for other people, 
but they used it as a means to show off. As a me, it, it wasn't a means to talk with God and again in any kind of reality. It was a means by which I can impress people uh, with my relationship with God or my way with words or the wordsmith that I am, but not only to impress them, but then with the idea of related to the widows that we can then use that uh, great impression that's been left upon them and use it to make ourselves uh, richer. And that's what they would do. And the older people would look at these uh, scribes and these Pharisees and all of their outward prayers and all of their outward appearances and think what mighty spiritual people they were and they were a million miles away from the heart of God. And they'd pull out their checkbook and they would uh, write the checks. And these people knew the scam. They knew that older people are the easiest people to take advantage of. And you see the same thing sometimes on Christian television. It's very hard to watch where people that are trying to get money, and they're clearly focusing uh, upon the poor. They're f clearly focusing upon uh, the elderly, upon widows and so forth. And send even from your social security, and God will bless you ten times whatever it is that you send in. One of the reasons that it's, it's so sad is that um, I remember listening to a medical thing a few, maybe a couple of years ago and all, and, and they were, it was on the radio, and they were talking about how as we grow older, there's a particular chemical in our body, a particular hormone that uh, disappears as we grow older. And, and that particular chemical is the chemical that makes us cautious earlier in life to situations that we realize this is a scam, this is no good, I need to get out of here. I need to say no to this. But the older we get, the more we lose that until ultimately if we live long enough, it will be completely gone. And it's not just the doctors and the scientists who know this, it's the scam artists that know these kind of, of things. And that's why the, the emails and the, and the phone calls and all the different kinds of things, do you think they're after a 22-year-old? What does a 22-year-old have in terms of they're going to put their next quarter in their gas tank. And they're going to say, what in the world are you talking? Get out of here. They're loaded up with this chemical. And, uh, but they're trying to find a person who'll, who's lost all of that and, and can now be easily duped. And it's a terrible thing when a telemarketer uses that against an elderly population. This is, these people are the scum of the earth in that way. And there's only one thing that's worse than that, is when religious people use the same thing to try and scam people for money and do it in the name of God. And so Jesus says, these will receive uh, greater condemnation uh, for what it is that they're, uh, they, have, uh, they, they are doing. And again, the Bible says that be not many masters or teachers, for you will face the harsher judgment. And, and I will be, and every leader in any church will be more harshly judged than anyone who attends uh, that church. And, and it's, it, it should be so. And uh, there needs to be that kind of fear of God in all of it. 
Now, Jesus, he sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich uh, put in uh, much. So Jesus is sitting opposite the treasury in the area uh, of the temple. He's finished kind of teaching his disciples here, and he's uh, probably in the outer court of the temple, known as the court of the Gentiles. As he's doing that, he's evidently now begins to draw closer to the temple itself and into uh, the court of, of the women. And maybe he's just wanting a break from the Jewish religious leaders and here's a place to have a seat. But, but he, he, he sits down in this place and up, up uh, uh, against the wall uh, in, in this court, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles that people would come and they would drop their money in. Uh, at the temple. They were called the trumpets, and presumably uh, the narrow end was up here at the top, and then the, the larger collection in the shape of a trumpet was, was down uh, at, at, at the bottom. And each of those uh, trumpets, those 13 trumpets that were placed there upon the wall, they all had a special uh, purpose related to the daily sacrifices. The money was used to underwrite uh, the, the worship services and the sacrificial system at, at the temple. So giving in one trumpet, uh, it was, it was, uh, that money would then go to buy corn or wine or oil for the sacrifices. If you put money in another trumpet, it might be for the incense or the wood related to the sacrifices and other trumpets for, for uh, all of these uh, different kind of purposes. And Jesus, he, he sat on a bench in that court, and he, and he watched now this crowd give their money. And remember, this is very close to the Passover. You've got a, a massive number of people uh, descending upon Jerusalem at this particular point in time. It's a lot to watch, lots of, uh, lots of people there. They estimate that the population of Jerusalem would uh, rise to about a million people uh, for the Feast of Passover, even in, in, uh, even in those days. And so... He sits on a bench and he watches this giving going on. Now, now people are, are an unending uh, uh, source of entertainment. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that. I remember the first time Karen and I uh, were on our way back from Israel with a group and, and uh, Paris was the hub to come back in and so uh, the groups uh, that wanted to could spend three days in Paris. We're walking past all of these cafes and all these restaurants and everything, and all of the tables are up against the window, and they're outside, and all of the seating is, is looking out toward the street. And Karen and I, you know, we go to a restaurant, and we want something where we can look at one another. That's very odd, but we were a lot younger. We didn't realize that when you're younger, you're the one being looked at. And then later on, you take those seats, and you watch the human parade uh, go by. I went to a bakery recently and ordered a cup of coffee and a croissant, and in the time that it took me to eat that, I probably saw 50 people go by and the most amazing cross-section of humanity that you could witness in five minutes. Very, very fascinating. I'd love to give you details about it, but I can see you're on the edge of your seat, and we're just about out of time here. But Jesus isn't people watching here. He is watching how people choose to worship the Lord in, in giving. And so he noticed how the, the people put the money into the treasury, uh, we're told, and, uh, and he noticed that the rich put in very much. And, uh, and then uh, one poor widow, she's a poor widow. That's a very vulnerable place in that ancient, ancient culture. It was one thing to be a widow and be middle class. It was another thing to be a wealthy widow. Now, that was hard enough, 
to, but to be a widow and to be poor as well, ultimate picture of vulnerability. Uh, 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 because now you have, you have no, uh, in, in, uh, in, in the ancient world, your children were your social security. They took care of you in your old age. So to be a widow and, and to be poor, the husband is gone, she's in a vulnerable place, and she comes and she throws in two mites, uh, it'd be, uh, which make a quadrant. It'd be like uh, putting in a buck fifty uh, in uh, money today for us. And he watches her do this. And Jesus, uh, this so impacted him uh, that so in verse 40, uh, 43, so he called the disciples to himself and he said to them, and the idea that the disciples are ever, evidently within earshot here. And, and when the word, the word that's used in the Greek for Jesus calling them is that he called excitedly. Something excited his heart when he watched what this uh, woman uh, did here. And he's going to make it a teachable moment for them. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given uh, to the treasury. For they uh, all put in out of their abundance, but she, put, uh, she out of her poverty uh, put in all that she had, her whole uh, livelihood." And what Jesus was excited about here, and, and what's important for us to know in terms of giving, number one, Jesus does not ridicule or condemn uh, the existence of those 13 trumpets or any giving to God. Uh, giving to God, God could, you know, God could su supply and support His work uh, uh, in old, under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant any kind of way. He could just speak money into existence. He could speak you know, diamonds. He could speak any gold into existence to support his work. But he's chosen for his work to be supported by his people. And uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Somebody has said that when every time that we give as Christians, we give a little more of our selfishness away. Every time we give as Christians, it's an acknowledgement that everything that I have has come from God, and I need that reminder. And every time we give, it is a reminder to ourselves that God is my su uh, supplier, that my trust is in God and not in however much money I, I may or may not have. And these things that we desperately need to be reminded of in, in terms of not just money, but in, in terms uh, of God. Someone has said uh, about giving that uh, in terms of giving, giving tithes, offerings under the new covenant as, as we do, it, that it isn't God's way of raising money. It's His way of raising children. And it's absolutely true. And it's a way uh, in which we worship God, we reflect um, our heart toward God, and we, we reflect what is uh, truly the God and the master of our life. I would contend that anybody that is a Christian that does not give financially to God's work, God is not their master, and God is not the security within their life. Their giving and lack of giving it makes, it, makes it evident. It's just as clear, clear as a bell on it. I'm not preparing you for an offering here. I'm just, just saying. And so Jesus, when He looks at the giving, for Him, the issue is not the amount the issue that blessed his heart was the sacrifice that was behind it. And what is true of this, the people that gave of their plenty and, the, and this woman giving of her, uh, her, her widow's uh, mites here is, is a truth for us as well. 
And that when God looks at giving and He measures giving, He measured it, measures it as an act of worship toward Him in direct proportion to the sacrifice that it represents when we give that gift to Him. And Jesus is into it all concerned uh, for her. He didn't wring His hands and say, oh my goodness, she put her, you know, the buck fifty in there and uh, out of her necessity. It doesn't mean that she didn't have any other money, but it was to cut very deep into to what she did have and now what's she going to do to eat and all. God gives great promises to those who, who give to Him and worship Him in this way, that He's going to supply, uh, supply their needs. And so this uh, great uh, thing is Jesus looks at the giving of this, uh, of this, uh, this widow woman and uh, how it blessed his heart. I mean, here he is just days. He knows when he's going to be crucified. It's just a day or two away. And then, and then in this midst of a sea of absolute hypocrisy and opposition and hard-heartedness, he sees in this woman a heart of someone who loves God, who gets God, who gets what uh, it means to know God and to be a part of His plan, and, and it greatly uh, blessed His heart. I, w- I will say, related uh, to this, I'm, I'm never afraid uh, to speak about money. And, uh, uh, um, and I, I love the fact that we hit it every once in a while in the Scriptures as we're going through, whether on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night. And if we had any kind of urgent need or something like uh, that, there's always need. But if, uh, you know, the bottom were falling out or something, I would address the body uh, related uh, to the issue. But it, it is fascinating today that uh, the people who uh, uh, study all of this stuff and examine all of this stuff, on this front alone, they're very concerned for the future of the church in America. And uh, because it is the, the greatest generation and it is the baby boomers who are supporting the church, churches by and large, and missions and everything else with it by and large in the United States of America. And the generations below that, millennial and all, I'm not talking about you individually as a millennial, but in that generation, that generation is not giving as Christians. Or if they do give, they want to say so on whether that money gets spent to paint the nursery or whether it gets sent here or sent there or whatever they want to, to control it. And there's going to be a tremendous crisis in the next 20 years in the body of Christ if Christians as a whole do not take seriously this area of giving and, and how it is a reflection of our heart and our relationship with God, how we see Him, how we view Him in our life, that, and, and how that money tests us in these areas in a way that nothing else in life uh, does. They, you know, they talk, people talk about the tithe and, and, and this, and is it New Testament and, and all of these kind of things. And you, you look at the studies that come out now in terms of Roman Catholicism, it's, it's, hard, it's negligible. And, and the giving of, in an evangelical church like this, uh, the giving in evangelical churches, these are born-again Christians, is something like 2.1, 1.8%. I mean, if it was a 10%, nobody would know what to do with the money in supporting God's work all around the world and even locally. I don't say it to condemn. You know me better than, than that. But to just simply say this is a very, very important part 
of the Christian life. And again, it is not God's way supremely of raising money, but raising children. And the church will advance uh, on the basis of of what, uh, how seriously we take this as Christians. And very often we look at things, in, and I'll be done in just a moment on this, but, uh, but very often we look and, and, uh, and we can use an excuse that the woman could have very easily used here. Ah, the temple will take care of itself. People are putting all kinds of money into those trumpet vials and uh, look at how much the rich are giving and it'll be enough for them. And what difference will my buck 50, you know, make in, in all of it? But the church, historically, has always moved forward on the giving of the poor. It has always been that way. Thankfully, there are rich people who give, but by and large, it moves forward on the giving of the poor. And so it's an important passage that speaks, I think, deeply uh, to our hearts as Christians and to, to see whether where we are in this important area of our life is something that blesses him and would please him and he would look at us and say, they get it, they understand it. In a world in which, as Jesus might say, I'm being rejected and my death is being planned, these expressions of love toward me, even in the form of giving, are being done to bless my heart, and I know that we want to be in that place as well. I don't accuse anybody of not being in that that place, but it's an important part of the Christian life, an important area to be educated in. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful glimpse at the wisdom and the power and the love and the beauty of our Savior in this section of 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 Mark chapter 12 and how we've enjoyed studying it together and to have these wonderful things sown into our heart and into our relationship with you. We thank you for being here and being a part of all of it with us, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.